Why don't you guys go ahead and make your way back to your seats. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good? Awesome. We're at church. Of course you're doing good, right? Like Matt said, man, last week we celebrated 160 years of being a church, which is, uh, which is awesome. We're so excited about it. If, if you didn't happen uh, to be here last week, you can get on our Facebook page. We live stream the, the whole service, and you can watch the whole service. It's still on our Facebook page, um, and then the, the documentary that we showed as well. So man, be, be sure to check that out if you didn't get a chance. And, and like Matt said, check out the lobby. We're going to leave that stuff up for you for a while just so we can uh, kind of celebrate this year, uh, this anniversary. This morning, we're going to dive back into our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you want to get your Bible out and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that's where we're going to be. And we're going to be finishing up chapter 3 this morning. But before we can do that, I, I want to take us back and review what we saw two weeks ago. Right? So we had an awesome uh, celebration service last week. And, and this week, what we're going to study, uh, I need you to recollect what we studied two weeks ago. So we're going to do a quick review of, of what Jeff taught us from the scripture two weeks ago. And, and two weeks ago, what we saw in 1 Corinthians 3 is the judgment seat of Christ, right? We, we saw that time, that judgment that is for the believer. And that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. And, and so what you need to remember about the judgment seat of Christ, it is not for the lost, that is the great white throne judgment that we see in Revelation where anyone who does not confess Christ as their Lord ultimately will be judged on the merit of their works, right, of their sins because they did not accept the free gift of eternal life from Jesus Christ as he paid for their sins on Calvary. That is for the unbeliever. That is the great white throne judgment. The judgment seat of Christ is the believer's judgment. It is the judgment of our service to Christ after salvation, right? It is a judgment of our works, of our service, of our ministry to the Lord after we are saved. And we don't want to confuse those two because you can get your, your doctrine of salvation muddied up if you, if you get the works on the wrong side of salvation, right? Jeff showed us Ephesians chapter 2 a couple weeks ago. Verses 8, 9, and 10 show us this. Right, you guys know the two verses, uh, verses 8 and 9 at least, right? For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And that is a key verse in evangelism and sharing the gospel with people. They need to know that our works don't save us, right? Only the finished work of Christ on the cross of, Cal on the, of, Christ on the cross of Calvary can, can pay for our sins, right? That's the only thing that can. But verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, if Jesus Christ has made you a new creature this morning, say amen. amen. So we have been created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So we were not saved by our works, but after we've been saved, by placing our faith and trust in the shed blood of Christ, now we get to work. Amen. That is when we, now we have been created, we are a new creature in Christ unto good works. And I want to remind you, that the theme of the book of 1 Corinthians that, that Jeff has given this study is the power of community. In, first, in the book of 1 Corinthians, we see Paul addressing and oftentimes rebuking the church at Corinth, who was a carnal church. They were caught in their carnality and their flesh. And what happens is when we get our focus, our perspective out of balance, and we forget about the community, the church, the whole, 
and we focus on ourselves, the individual believer, that's when we get carnal. And that's the problem that the church at Corinth had. They forgot about the whole and were focusing on themselves. They got selfish, they got fleshly, they got carnal because they lost their focus. The book of 1 Corinthians, the th underlying theme of the whole thing is the power of community that we, as Jeff said, is greater than me. And it's when we get that out of balance that we get carnal and we get fleshly and we get selfish. That's the theme of the book. So it's interesting to me, I don't know if you noticed this a couple weeks ago, when we saw the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians 3, it's interesting that in a book that's all about we, the church, that we talk about the judgment seat of Christ, we're given this doctrine that's about who? Me <laughs> and you, right? The individual believer. That's interesting to me because throughout this book, we're talking about we, the church, the body, but yet the judgment seat of Christ that we're given in 1 Corinthians 3 is about the individual believer. Let me remind you of that quick. Let's just quickly read through that. Starting in verse 9, it starts off with we. He says, for we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. Now, Paul quickly shifts to the individual believer when he starts to talk about the judgment seat of Christ. In verse 10, he says, According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man, see, we're going to start seeing singular, the individual. Let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man, we're going to see this, individual, individual, specifically the individual. Now if any man build upon this foundation of gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. You are responsible for your service to the Lord after salvation, individually. Singular. If any man's, there it is, work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. See, it's singular. The entire time we're talking about me and you, the individual believer. You are responsible, believer, for your service to the Lord after your salvation. You don't get to ride on the coattails of everyone in front of you who's putting in the work. We're, we're called to work. We're called unto good works. But he's talking about the individual, which is interesting. The judgment seat of Christ is specific to you. So why does God focus on that here in a book that's mostly about the power of community? The whole, we, is greater than me. Well, what we're going to see today as Paul wraps up 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is the answer to that question. The end of chapter 3 is going to tie a nice, neat little bow on the first three chapters of this book. So, really quick, I want us to read the passage that we're going to study today, and then we'll dive in. So starting in verse 16, remembering the judgment seat, it says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he might be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Therefore, let no man glory in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours. And ye, brothers and sisters, are Christ's. 
Christ is God's. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we beg you, Lord, to reveal the scripture to us. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that's in us that reveals the word of God to us. And we pray, God, that we would listen to the word with open ears and open hearts, God, attentive to whatever the work of the Spirit is that, it's, that, that you're doing inside of us, God, that, that wishes to conform us more to the image of your Son. God, change us. Make us more like you. Make us more like your word. We love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So the reason that I spent time reviewing the judgment seat of Christ at, at the beginning of this message is not just because we had a celebration last week. It's, I don't want us to forget the context in which this passage is spoken to us. Because, as you'll see, uh, is the title of this message, is everything we're going to talk about is living in light of the judgment seat of Christ. The, this passage is coming right on the coattails of the judgment seat of Christ and has everything to do with that. So we need to understand that in context. It is not just its own random passage that we just get to figure out what it means. No, it's in light of the judgment seat of Christ. So the first thing I have for you today is in light of the judgment seat of Christ, what we're going to see from this passage is that my individual contribution to the body of Christ can be beneficial or it can be detrimental. That is the theme of what we're going to see this morning. In light of the judgment seat of Christ and what we saw two weeks ago and what we recalled this morning, my contribution to the body after salvation can be beneficial or it can be detrimental. Right? It, it, it can either benefit the body or it can harm the body. And on the flip side, it can either benefit me personally in eternity or it can harm me and my rewards in eternity as well. So this morning, what I want us to see, and it's going to take us a minute to break down some of these verses, but the first thing I want us to see is that in light of the judgment seat of Christ, how should we live? Two main points today, and the first one is in light of the judgment seat, I must strive to be holy. I must strive to be holy. Verses 16 and 17 says again, Paul says, know ye not that ye are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. There's so much packed into these two verses that I, I want to just take them phrase by phrase. There, there's so much in here that we need, we need to just unpack it and let God's word reveal it to us. So the first thing we see there is he says, Paul says in rhetorical fashion, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God? Did you notice, by the way, that we've switched back from the individual to the whole again? So, so the judgment seat of Christ was to the individual, but now he says, know ye not that ye are the temple of God. That's the plural pronoun there. That's important. He's talking to us all, to ye, to, to everyone. The judgment seat was talking to me personally, but then Paul shifts his focus back to the group. This verse is not in context talking to the individual believer, but the church as a whole. It goes back to verse 9 to prove it to you. Remember verse 9, he says, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. And then we see down here in verse 16 that we are not only God's building, we are God's temple, which is a building. Ye are the temple of God. And Paul exclaims that in rhetorical fashion. He says, don't you know? You gotta know this, believer. This is what he says to the church at Corinth. It's, it's rhetorical because the answer to the question is, of course, yes, we, we should know this. So I want to ask you, first of all, guys, do, do we realize 
that ye, we, are the temple of God. We are the temple. This body of believers makes up the temple of God. So the first thing there under this point is the temple of God is the church. The temple of God is us. Ye are the temple of God. Ye are God's building. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, and I don't want you to get too far ahead. Because some of you are thinking, well, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians 6 that sounds a lot like this. And I thought that was talking about the individual believer in my temple and the Holy Spirit living in me. We'll get there. Don't get too far ahead. We're going to break it down. We're going to break it down phrase by phrase here. Okay? So the temple of God is the church. And what I want you to see for now is the context of ye just means that all of us together make up the, the, the temple. The context is not the individual. So in, in the Old Testament, what was the temple? In the Old Testament, the temple was the building that was built with the sole purpose of God dwelling in it, right? That is why the temple existed. That is where God dwelled on this earth when the temple existed. It is where they did the sacrifices when God was on the earth in the Old Testament. That is where it all went down. That's where God dwelled. And, and before the temple existed, we had the tabernacle, right, which was the mobile temple. It was just a tent version of the temple, and before Israel had their land, they had this tabernacle that they made, this mobile structure for God to live in. They took it with them through the wilderness. They took it across Jordan into Canaan until they finally built the, the temple, which was a while after that. In 2 Samuel 7, you can check it out on your own, uh, that's where we see David had his desire to build the temple, the house for God, but God actually told him that his son Solomon would do that, Right? The temple had three parts similar to the tabernacle. It has the outer court, right? And then it has the building, which would have been split into two on the inside. You would have the holy place. And then on the inside, the very inner core, was the holy of holies. And inside the holy of holies is where God would dwell. The ark of the covenant with the mercy seat was in the holy of holies. And it was separated from the holy place by a thick veil, right? It was this curtain that was incredibly thick and incredibly large. And this veil separated the holy of holies, where God dwelt, from the holy place. And the priest could only go in there once a year, and he had to follow a strict set of rules in the ceremonial law because man was separated from God by his sin. And God dwelled on the earth with man in that temple, but man could not have access to him without doing everything that the law told him to do. And even, only, even when they did that, only one man could do it one time a year. And if he did something wrong, he dropped dead because he was in the presence of almighty, perfect God. That's what the temple was in the Old Testament. It's where God dwelled. But check it out. When Jesus died on the cross, what happened? Remember that little anecdote that's just kind of thrown into the Gospels? When, when Jesus died on the cross and he gave up the ghost, the veil rent in two. And it didn't, it didn't tear from bottom to top like a man could get in there and cut it. No, it, it split specifically from top to bottom, from heaven downward, because God had condescended and made a way for man to get to him. The barrier that blocked man from God had been removed and it ripped on that day. What an amazing thing. What had separated man from God had been removed. And so now, believer, now we have no need of a physical temple because the temple of God on the earth is the church. And we see this cross-referenced in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. Paul says to the church at Ephesus, Now therefore ye, notice the plural context again, are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. He's speaking to believers. 
and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together, why? For an habitation of God through the Spirit. We have the same purpose, church, that the temple did in the Old Testament. A habitation for God to dwell in. See that? We as believers are builded together as the temple of God through the Spirit, verse 22 says. The temple of God, it's all of us. It's collectively the church fitly framed together as the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 and, and by the way, we're going to see a lot of 1 Corinthians references today. What I, what I love about 1 Corinthians is it cross-references itself so much. The book of 1 Corinthians just reveals itself within itself. It's amazing how God works. 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 20, Paul says, But now are they many members, yet one body. And the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again to the head, or the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ. And members, in particular, ye, church, we are the body. We are the temple of God. We have to understand that. Paul exclaims it in rhetorical fashion. He says, don't you know this? <laughs> we gotta know this. This is elementary, Paul says. We gotta know that. We are the body. We're the temple of God. And you gotta think for a second, well, how is this possible, right? How is this so? I mean, have you ever thought about that? How is it? that we can come to church and we can get saved. And all of a sudden, people who have different walks of life than us, different backgrounds, come from different sides of the railroad tracks, people who have different families, we can be lifelong friends knit together at the soul. How is that possible? How can we become the body of Christ? Well, go back to Ephesians 2.22. You're builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. That Spirit that we receive when we are saved is what does the action of building. He, the Spirit, builds us together. And that is why you can visit a like-minded church in another state and have lifelong friends with someone you met for a couple days because the Spirit builds us together. We're the temple of God. And so now we can get to the next phrase of that verse. It says, and, so he explains one thing, and then he goes to the next, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. See, Paul is explaining two separate things that are related Ye are the body of Christ, and, by the way, the Spirit of God dwells in each and every single one of you. It dwells in you all. That, as we just saw, is actually how the body of Christ happens, is the Spirit. That's why he's saying it here. It's related. The temple is only the temple because the Spirit dwells in each and every one of us. And because of the Spirit, we are builded together, fitly framed as the temple of God. And Paul says... Don't you know this? <laughs> Christian, don't you know? I mean, surely you do, but we gotta be reminded. Don't we know that the Spirit of God dwells inside of us? So that's our next part. The Holy Spirit dwells in the believer. The temple of God is the church, and the Holy Spirit dwells inside 
the believer. We're going to hit some of these rapid fire because I'm sure you know them, but if, if you don't know these, man, be encouraged. If you're saved this morning, you have the Spirit of God who is equal with God, the Father and God, the Son, as one equal part of the Trinity, living, dwelling inside of you. Christ prophesied of this coming Holy Spirit when he was still on the earth. He, he prophesied of the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer in John 14. He says, I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter, capital C, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him. For he dwelleth with you, he says to his believers back then, he dwelleth with you and shall, yet future, be in you. He says he's going to be inside of you. You're not going to have to be like David, who in the Old Testament, when he sinned, asked God, don't take your spirit from me. No, 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 he's going to live inside of you, believer. Paul says it's one of the mysteries of God in Colossians 1, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. It's how we hold fast the form of sound words. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13, hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep, how? By the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. It takes place at the moment of salvation because in 1 John 4, he says, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. What an amazing thing. God is placed into us and we are placed in to God. What an amazing mystery. How does he do it? I don't know. <laughs> but praise the Lord that he does. You know, it's also the proof of purchase of your souls. I love this. Ephesians chapter one is so technical. It's, oh, I love this. First, or Ephesians one, verse 13. He says, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. That is so technical. If you've ever bought a house, you know what earnest money is, right? You have to put a little bit of money down and say, well, this is my earnest money. It's literally called that. That I'm putting down saying, I'm going to buy this house. This is my proof of purchase. I don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars to give you right now, but I'm gonna go to the bank and hopefully they'll give it to me. Here's a hundred bucks. It says I'm coming back, right? It's your proof of purchase. And God says, you know what your earnest money is? I left the Holy Spirit with you. And guess what? That's the earnest of your inheritance until the redemption of the, of the purchased possession. Christ bought you, he purchased you with his blood and to prove to you that he's coming back, he left his Holy Spirit in you as earnest money. What an amazing thing. It's proof that he's coming back. If you've ever wondered, if you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, it's proof he's coming. He's coming back. And you know what else the Holy Spirit is? It is the link that links believers together in the temple of God like we've seen. The book of 2 Corinthians chapter six tells us, what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The Holy Spirit dwelling inside the believer is what builds together the temple of God, the body of Christ. It's an amazing thing. And Paul says, yeah, you already know that, right? <laughs> you gotta know that. We, we need to know this because if we don't understand that truth, 
The rest of this, it won't matter. It won't make any sense. But if we have this now, we can go on to verse 17. Because verse 17 talks all about defiling the temple of God, bringing destruction. Defiling the temple of God brings the destruction of God. Right? Look back at verse 17. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Let's just look at the first half of that for now. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. We spent a lot of time on the last verse because if we don't understand that, we will take verse 17 out of context. For some reason, people love to pull just verse 17 and pick it out to judge people about what they do with their bodies. Because I'm the temple of God. The Holy Spirit lives inside of me. Yes, but that's not what this verse said. It says, ye are the temple of God. See? You know what this verse is not talking about? And we gotta hear this. You gotta hear this. It's not talking about cigarettes. It's not talking about alcohol defiling the temple of God. It's not talking about tattoos or piercings or whatever your favorite thing is to hate. It's not talking about that in context. This verse's purpose is not for us to be grumpy Christians who look down on others with our arms crossed and our brows furrowed. It's not what it's for. It's not what it's for. You can't cherry pick this. Because in context, it means so much more. We actually do damage to the scripture and make it mean way less if we just cherry pick it and say, well, it's talking about the temple of our body. It actually makes the word of God shallow. Because it's so much deeper than that. The temple of God is the church. It's, the temple of God is not the individual believer. And I, and I say that, choosing my words carefully, because we'll get to the question, what about 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19? I'm glad you asked. Let's go there. <laughs> because Paul asks another rhetorical question that sounds very similar in 1 Corinthians 6. And he says, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Sounds very similar to 1 Corinthians 3. And sometimes these verses are used interchangeably, like they do say the exact same thing. But they don't say the exact same thing. Because we already saw that the context of 1 Corinthians 3 is ye. It's the building of God. It's the temple of God being made up of many members. That's what we saw. And I'm not going to take too much time to get into 1 Corinthians 6, because we'll get there in a couple months. But you know what the context of that whole chapter is? And chapter 5 and chapter 7? It's fornication. It's physical fornication. He is talking to you about your body in 1 Corinthians 6. And he says it that way. He picks his word carefully. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you. Which ye have of God and ye are not your own. The only, and and I want to show you this. This is important because God picks his words very carefully. And if we'll study the words of God, we will get amazing benefit. The only time this phrase is used, the temple of the Holy Ghost, is right here. It's the only time. Everywhere else, we see temple of God, temple of the Lord. So you know what we just saw by studying the scripture? The temple of God is the church. The temple of the Holy Ghost is the believer. Because the Holy Ghost dwells inside of you. You are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Absolutely, I'm not saying you're not. But the temple of God is the whole. It's what is builded together by the Holy Spirit that indwells each and every one of us. So our temples are knit together into the temple of God. That's what it, there's a difference. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit isn't God. I'm saying they're spelled differently. And they're referring to different things here. The temple of the Holy Ghost is me. 
It's the believer, the temple of the Holy, or the temple of God is the church, as we just saw in 1 Corinthians 3. So we can't use this verse, we can't cherry pick 1 Corinthians 3.17 to say that if you smoke cigarettes and you defile your temple, that God's going to destroy you. Can't say that. I'm I'm not advocating for smoking, by the way. (laughs) I'm not advocating for it. I'm just saying we can't misapply God's word because we think it means our favorite thing to hate. We can't do that. There's other places you can go (laughs) to talk about that stuff, but this is not one of them. The ten, if the, see, this is where, if we take this out of context, it makes God's word more shallow. Because if it's just referring to the temple of our, our body, it's just saying, well, well, yeah, it's sowing to the flesh, man. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap of the flesh corrupt, corruption, right? It's Galatians 6. But if the temple of God is the church, which we just saw it is, it means a lot more. Because if you defile the body of Christ, God's not messing around. You defile the temple of God. God will destroy him. That's what the text says. And so let's take a look at this. Defile. If you run it through the scriptures, the word defile literally means to corrupt or to ruin or even more commonly to make unclean. That's what defile means. And if you run that through the Old Testament, when we see the word defile, it's usually linked to one of two things. The word defile, and, and you, can, you can run this in your, in your Bible study program or even on your phone app and, and just see the word defile in the Old Testament. It's usually linked to either idolatry or fornication. Those are the two things that defilement is given to. Ezekiel 20 and verse 7 shows us that very thing. It says, Then said I unto them, Cast ye away every man the abomination of his eyes, and defile not yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And I won't show you where defile refers to fornication. You can run that on your own. But those are the two main things that it's referring to. By the way, idolatry is just spiritual fornication. And in God's word, spiritual fornication always leads to physical fornication. In today's context, if you lift your boyfriend or girlfriend up above God, guess what? Your spiritual idolatry is gonna lead to physical idolatry every time. And that's why God never wanted the children of Israel, run it in the Old Testament, that's why he never wanted them to intermarry with the pagan nations of the land. Because when they gave their hearts over to the pagan nations of the world, guess what? The spiritual idolatry was always linked with the physical idolatry, with the physical fornication. It's always linked. And it's no wonder that we see that used with defile so much because what does it do? It corrupts you. It ruins you. It makes you unclean. That's what defile means. So what does it mean to defile the temple of God? Well, if we look at defile in the New Testament, Jesus tells us that defiling, it's not an external thing. In Mark chapter 7, in verse 15, Jesus says there's nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. In verse 18, skipping down a little, he saith unto them, are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it can't defile him? Because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the drought, purging all meats. And he said, that which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts and adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and those are what defile the man and defile the man. Defilement comes from within, and you know what it is? It's the flesh. It's the flesh. Defiling the temple of God comes from the flesh, which is carnality, which is what the, first, the book of 1 Corinthians is all about. It's carnality. It's that defilement coming from within. Carnal Christians 
can defile the church in many ways. That's a very broad brush to, to, to paint with. That can flesh out many ways, but carnal Christians can defile the temple of God, the church. And that is what God is saying here. And you know, his stern warning for us, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. That's a good reminder. It's a good reminder in the light of the judgment seat of Christ. Remember our context. In the light of what we learned about me being responsible for my service to the Lord and my rewards contingent upon that service. To remember that my carnality can defile the temple of God. In light of the judgment seat of Christ, I need to walk in holiness. I need to strive to be holy. Not because God says if you smoke a cigarette, he'll destroy your body. No, because my carnality can ruin the big temple. I need to strive to be holy and walk in purity and righteousness so that my carnality does not infiltrate the temple. Let it be on someone else. It's not gonna be me. That's what we need to learn from this. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. That's how he finishes off verse 17. God gives that stern warning, notice, to the carnal Christians who think, listen, this isn't affecting anyone but me. Mm. Hear God's warning. Your carnality does not just affect you, brother or sister in Christ, because you are knit together by the Spirit into the temple of God. And when God looks down and sees defilement in one part of his temple, it's defiled, and God takes it seriously. It says, him shall God destroy. He gives a stern warning. If you mess with the temple, God's gonna mess with you. Think about it. The church is not only God's temple. What else is it? It's his bride. It's his bride, Ephesians 5, remember? It says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Hey guys, let me ask you, and don't answer this out loud, but if any, if any person wanted to come against your wife, are you gonna sit there and take it? Are, are you gonna sit there if somebody messes with your wife? I hope not. <clears throat> God doesn't. God doesn't. He says, if any man defile the temple, by the way, that's my bride, I will destroy him. That's what he says. So the fear of the Lord, if anything, should keep you from coming against the, the bride of Christ. I don't care where that's at on the planet. You don't come against the bride of Christ because God takes it seriously. So let's, let's move on a little bit. So how will God destroy them? It, he just says, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. How's that happen? I just want you to notice that all it says is, him shall God destroy. He doesn't say when. He doesn't say how. Doesn't it seem sometimes like people get away with all sorts of stuff. I was one of the kids when I was little that I couldn't do anything wrong without getting caught. <laughs> but it seemed like other people could get away with stuff all the time. How is it that some, it seems like some people get away with defiling the temple of God, the church, and nothing happens? Well, God's word assures us that God, he's not winking at that, and he's not missing it either. It doesn't matter now or later, God is going to give them what they deserve. Because if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 24, God says that some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment. Some people get caught right when they do it, and their judgment comes out right then. But you know what? Some men, they follow after. God doesn't say how. He doesn't say when. 
but he promises he shall destroy them. So some men's sins are open and dealt with now, some men they follow after. Let me remind you the context of this passage is in light of the judgment seat of Christ. So is it possible that their destruction could come then? Because if you're in the temple of God and defiling the temple of God, you have the Holy Spirit too, which means you're saved. Is it possible that their destruction comes at the judgment seat? It's definitely possible. I don't, I'm not saying dogmatically that that's true because God doesn't say dogmatically when it'll happen. He just says he shall do it. So in light of the judgment seat of Christ, let's just strive to be holy. Let's just strive to be holy and not defile the temple of God. We don't know when that will happen. But check it out, guys. Our contribution to the body, good or bad, will have an effect. So we need to strive to be holy and to walk in holiness because the temple of God is holy. That's, that's how he wraps it up. Because, because the temple is holy. That's why I'm being so serious about this. First Peter chapter 1, verse 15. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. God is holy. We should be holy too. Ephesians chapter one and verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, what's he chosen us for? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That's what he's chosen us to. He has predestinated you, believer, Ephesians one talks about and goes on to say, to holiness, to live as he is holy. So church, temple, bride of Christ, we need to strive to be holy because he is holy and we are his temple. So in light of the judgment seat of Christ, we must strive to be holy. Let us take heed, brothers and sisters, how we build upon that foundation. Let it be gold and silver and precious stones and not wood, hay, and stubble. That's how we need to strive to live in light of the judgment seat. <clears throat> so I want to ask you before we move on to the next verses, will you deal with whatever you're dealing with now, today? Whatever you've been pushing down and suppressing and hiding, thinking that nobody else sees, will you just deal with it and not risk bringing the defilement into the temple? Because even though the temple is all of us, God says he will deal with you individually if you mess with that. So let's just strive to be, let's deal with it. You know, on Wednesday nights, we're going through Joshua in Ignite, and we just dealt with the sin of Achan in Joshua 7. You guys know that? So in Joshua 6, Jericho, God says, you're gonna destroy Jericho, but don't take anything. That's for me. Don't take the spoils. You can do that in other battles, but not, not this one. And you know what? One guy disobeys. He steals a goodly ba- Babylonish garment, and he steals some gold and silver, and he hides it in his tent. He hides that hidden sin, and guess what? Their next battle Israel loses. You can't expect to go into battle with hidden sin in the camp. That's what we've been learning on Wednesday nights. And you know what God says here? Just deal with it. Because Joshua falls down and he repents. He says, God, what do we do? He says, locate the sin, destroy it, get it out of here. They do that, they go back, they wipe out AI. Deal with it today. You can live victoriously if you'll just deal with that sin. That, that sin that Hebrews calls our besetting sin that so easily besets us. Just deal with it, man. Put it all out there. Give it to God because you know what? He's not a God who's sitting on the edge of heaven waiting to smite you. He's a God who's standing on the edge of heaven waiting for his prodigal son to come home. And if we'll confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me encourage you to deal with that today because in light of the judgment seat of Christ, brothers and sisters, we must strive to be holy. Number two, 
in light of the judgment seat of Christ, I must strive to not only be holy, but to be humble. To be humble. And here is where Paul is really gonna tie a bow on the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians because he's gonna refer to stuff he says in both of the first two chapters. He says in verse 18, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. So Paul reminds us of this concept of the wisdom of the world that if you'll remember, he laid out in in the first chapter, right? So that's the first thing we'll see under this is the wisdom of the world. And let me direct you back to 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18. Paul says, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by, wis- by their own wisdom, the wisdom of the world, they knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that perish. Because in the world's eyes, preaching the cross of Christ is foolish. But God says the wisdom of the world is foolish to him. In the world's wisdom, the natural man, as chapter two calls it, the preaching of the cross is foolish. But God says to me, the wisdom of the world is foolish. He takes the wise in their own craftiness. So what does God say to us today? Because he's talking to believers. If any of you seems to be wise in this world, let him become a fool so he can be wise. So let me just tell you, if you're wise in the world's standards, don't let that lift you up. It's okay to be smart. It's okay to be wise. But wise in the world's standards will lead you astray. It will lead you to be puffed up, right? 1 Corinthians 8.1 talks about knowledge puffeth up, but what edifies? Charity. Charity edifieth. Don't let the wisdom of this world, even though many of you, I'm sure, are very, very wise when it comes to this world's standards. Maybe, I don't know how that fleshes out for you, but maybe that's just some of you are very good businessmen or very prudent in your finances, or maybe some of you have many degrees after your name or just very, very good, uh, a very good student, or a scholar. That's not evil in and of itself. But the wisdom of the world in God's eyes is foolish. So don't let that lift you up above other people. That, that's, that's his warning. We, we need to strive to be humble. And let me ask you this. If you don't know Christ today, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, maybe this is the first time you've wandered into church in a long time. Can I just tell you the wisdom of this world will do nothing for you of eternal value? I mean, think about it. What has it done for you thus far? other than leave you alone and hopeless and depressed, devoid of meaning. The world, in the long run, will leave you with fatalism. It'll leave you with nihilism, which means everything is nothing. There's no point to anything. And it leaves you with no hope. It leaves you with atheism. It doesn't provide any hope in any of those. All it does is hopefully shrug off some responsibility of feeling like my actions will require (laughs) ramification. But the wisdom of this world leaves you with no point to life if you're trusting in it for eternal value because it says that life happened by chance and so you have no purpose. That's the world's wisdom. And not too long ago, a man who is very wise in the world's standards, maybe one of the wisest in a a very long time, his name was Stephen Hawking, and he recently passed away. And I just want to give you uh, one of his quotes. One of the wisest men in the world and by the world's standards. He says, When people ask me if a God created the universe, I tell them that the question itself makes no sense. Time didn't exist before the Big Bang, so there's no time for God to make the universe in. 
It's like asking directions to the edge of the earth. The earth is a sphere. It does not have an edge, so looking for it is a futile exercise. We are each free to believe what we want, and it's my view that the simplest explanation is there is no God. No one created our universe, and no one directs our fate. This leads me to a profound realization that there is probably no heaven and no afterlife either. We have this one life to appreciate the grand des design, that's a weird word to use there, design of the universe, and for that I am extremely grateful. Does that leave a man with any hope, the wisdom of this world? Does it leave him with any purpose or meaning or direction for life? No. Science is observable and repeatable and science repeatedly shows us that every cause has an effect and every effect has a cause, yet the largest effect of all time, the universe and life, has no cause? The wisdom of the world is foolish to God. It's foolish. Every cause has an effect, and yet the largest effect of all time, the universe has no cause. A man named Ravi Zacharias in his book called Jesus Among Secular Gods, which is a really good read, by the way, I, I, I recommend it, he says, have I ever read poetry that no, po no poet had written? Have I ever heard a song that no singer had sung or instrument had played? Had I ever read a book that no author had ever written? Have I ever been loved when there was no one behind that love? And he's just saying the same thing. Every effect has a cause. Have I ever read a book that no author had ever written? It makes no sense. Stephen Hawking and other men like Richard Dawkins think you're a fool if you believe in God, and especially so if you believe in a God who would come to earth and die a humiliating death for you. They think you're a fool. Richard Dawkins makes a living telling people that they're fools for believing that. But the truth is, friend, you have to become a fool in their eyes to be wise in God's. And that is okay. That is okay. And listen, if you're in here today and you don't know the Lord as your Savior, can I just challenge you to become a fool in the world's eyes and take on the wisdom of God? Because all of us in here, you know what? We're fools for God too. And listen, if you struggle sometimes with being humiliated by the world, thinking you're foolish, forget that, man. God says the wisdom of this world is foolish. And if you want to be wise in God's eyes, you need to become foolish in their eyes. But let's go back to the context here. Christian, do you ever let your worldly wisdom or knowledge puff you up? Don't do that. You might be an incredible businessman, like I said, or incredibly... Uh, incredibly successful or incredibly smart or an intellectual, that's fine. Just don't let that. In light of the judgment seat of Christ, none of that matters in eternity. So don't let that make a schism in the body. Don't let it puff you up. We must remember that we need to strive to be humble. Don't let the wisdom of the world, however much you may have of it, lift you up. Mark chapter 9 and verse 35 says that he, Jesus, sat down and called the twelve and saith unto them, if any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And in, in chapter 10, he says, but many that are first shall be last and the last first. You know, in God's economy, the way up is down. <laughs> the way to get ahead in life, in eternity, is to put yourself last, which is the opposite of the wisdom of this world. That's how you get ahead in life. It's, it's saying with John the Baptist that he must increase, but I must decrease, right? So brothers and sisters, Number one, in light of the judgment seat, we, we have to strive to be humble because of that worldly wisdom, but also it leads us to the next point, the pride of man. The pride of man. Let's just read those last couple of verses again in chapter three. He says, therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. 
don't glory in men. Whether that's yourself or he's talking specifically about someone else, because you'll remember in the first couple chapters of 1 Corinthians, they were glorying in who baptized them or who led them to the Lord. They were saying, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And he says, don't, don't glory in men. Why would you do that? That's pride. That's the pride of men. And then a lot of us nowadays, we take pride in ourselves, don't we? That is a stumbling block for us. Paul reminds us of what he said in chapter one, again, in verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. The only one who deserves glory is God. We don't deserve glory. So we need to watch that pride thing, guys, because it creeps up in all of us, me included. It creeps up. We need to watch that. We need to keep that ego in check, Christian. We gotta watch that. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, they're a little easier to keep an eye on because they're so evident. But the pride of life, it sneaks up on you. It sneaks up on you, and we need to be careful of that. The pride of man. Don't think of men more than is written of them in the word of God. In the next chapter in 1 Corinthians, chapter four, it says, and these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. For who maketh thee to differ from one another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? He says, everything that God has given you was a gift and he gave it to you. So why do you glory in something that you didn't have, God gave to you freely? So we need to watch the pride thing. We need to watch that. Don't, pride, don't take pride in other men. Don't take pride in ourselves. Very quickly, a few things Proverbs says about pride. Chapter 11 says, when pride cometh, then cometh shame. But with the lowly is wisdom. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 29, 23, a man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. So in God's economy, the way up is down. We, we fight this battle on our knees, not promoting ourselves. right? So don't think more of men than God does. And in the light of the judgment seat of Christ, man, leave pride by the wayside. There's no room for it here. There's no room for pride in the temple of God. There's no room for it. And Paul leaves us with this encouragement at the end because he says, Don't, therefore let no man glory in men for all things are yours. Paul, Apollo, Cephas, the world, life, death, things present, things to come, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. He says, why do we need to be prideful? Whether it's in ourselves or in other men, when God has given us all things. He's given them to us. And in case you forgot, man, you're Christ's. And Christ is God's. Isn't that awesome? Because here's where it ends up. Yes, the judgment seat of Christ, it should strike the fear of the Lord into our hearts so that we think about how we live this life now. It should, absolutely. That should change our hearts and our perspective. But remember, guys, it's your love for Christ and, f and, and for what he did for you and his love for you that compels you to serve him. We don't need to just live in trembling fear all the time. It should just change our perspective because we serve him out of his love for us and our love for him. It reminds me, this verse reminds me of what Paul says at the end of Romans 8 when he says, I'm persuaded that neither death 
nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, take heart, Christian. We are in Christ, and he is in us, and nothing can separate us from him. But in light of the judgment seat of Christ, we need to strive to be holy, and we need to strive to be humble. And we need to take heed of how we build upon the foundation of Christ. Because we're God's building. We're his temple. We're his body. We are his bride. And it's high time for the church to arise out of our sleep and get to work building. It's not. We can't let carnality and this Laodicean age keep us from doing what God has saved us to do. We gotta get up. We gotta get to work. So deal, let me just challenge you. Deal with whatever you gotta deal with today so that we can walk out of here ready to hit the ground running and do work for the Lord and to be the temple that God has made us to be. In the Old Testament, the temple was in one spot and all the world had to come to it. But you know what? We're the temple with feet and we're called to go. The temple goes to the world now. But how are we gonna do that if we're defiling the temple with our carnality? We need to strive to live in holiness and in humility. And can I just tell you, man, if you don't know Jesus Christ today, all you have to do is cry out to him. Like we've said, God has given us all things. There's nothing you can do to earn that salvation. The only thing you can earn is your one-way ticket to the other place. That's the only thing your works can earn you. And if you will simply obey what the scripture tells us in Romans 10 and confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and repent and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, the Bible says thou shalt be saved. And you can have purpose and you can have meaning and you can be a part of something greater than you because the Holy Spirit will come to dwell in you and will knit you together with our spirits and we will be a part of the temple of God. How amazing is that? Why, why, oh why would you not take that offer? I beg you to consider. Father God,